thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we're continuing our study of Exodus, and we will be concluding shortly uh, in the next two weeks. What I want to do tonight is focus on chapter 28, although in the readings we're moving ahead in chapter 34 and 35, I think. But the focus of tonight is going to be reading on chapter 28 because it talks about the clothing of the high priest and the priest in general. So it will be a little bit of a more on a drier side, because, or on a technical side, because we're going to look at all the details. And then hopefully next week, we are going to take a, a Catholic look at everything we've seen, whether it's, uh, and we've alluded to already, whether within the tabernacle and the clothing of the priest, I will give you all the Christian references in regards to how Christ himself celebrated the first Mass, what he was wearing, how everything you see here is actually pointing to him and why and where do our own tradition come from. So that uh, whenever you meet some of the Protestant friends who will tell you we invented that sort of stuff in, you know, in the Middle Ages, um, we, you'd be able to be a little bit more equipped, I hope, to respond back. And if not, at least to have your own strong foundation that what we see here is a continuation of what God had decreed to Moses in Exodus. And also, hopefully, that will... Um, you know, solidify the notion that the, the, the Old Testament isn't something of a relic that we have to keep simply because it's there, but it is essential and foundational to really understand what was the mission of Jesus when he came and to help us understand even our own times today. It is absolutely irrelevant uh, part of uh, Scripture. It isn't something we have to ignore. It's something we have to know and learn and cherish and love. So with that, let's go through then chapter 28. Now this chapter is really focused on the clothing of the, uh, of the high priest. So after the description of what the tabernacle, the inside and the outside, which we've, we've taken quite a bit of, we've, we spent um, a number of lectures talking about that to, in, in, to essentially plant in our heads this notion of the importance of the liturgy, its connection with morality and spirituality. All these three are the pillar of a truly Christian life, that we cannot hope to be, to conduct a truly moral life apart from a liturgical life and apart from a spiritual life. And we've already talked about the fact that in order to receive final perseverance, we must ask for it continuously. In order to live a moral life, to grow in the virtues, we must love the liturgy and understand our 
our worship in the liturgy, which is to give glory to God. We come to Mass not to ask first, but I mean, not, not, not to ask, but rather to give. That we are, and it is uh, merely our duty, not a great act of love when we come to Mass and we worship, because we are performing the duty of, the, of giving glory to God. So, and that's the virtue of piety, which is required of us. And anything above and beyond is what God gives back to us, including our, um, maybe the enjoyment we receive from the liturgy is something that we receive from God, that is, is something that He gives us. We cannot manufacture this. Um, and we should always be wary that whenever we have really strong compunction or strong sorrow or, or feelings of gratitude or we feel completely connected to the liturgy, not to, take, not to take that necessarily as a sign of our own holiness. In fact, if these thoughts come to mind, we have to be very, very careful because they're mostly an indication of our pride. But rather to see them truly for what they are, a gift that Jesus wishes that day to give us a gift. He give us a flower. He is touching our hearts. And to keep the focus on him, not on us. Very important for us. I, I, see, I see sometimes folks who, are, who tend to be over-sentimentalist, who think that the measure of holiness is measured by how, how much feeling they have. And they kind of confuse um, true virtue and true piety and true holiness with feelings. Uh, and feelings are wonderful and beautiful when we receive them from God, when He gives them to us. It's a gift that we must cherish and accept and receive. Uh, but it is what it is. It's a gift. Right? It's not necessarily uh, speaking about a true state. And we see it today particularly with Aaron. Because in the chapter 28, the Lord is instructing Moses on how Aaron, his brother, should be closed when he officiates as the high priest. And yet, this is the same Aaron who is going to, a little later, lead everybody, all the Israelites, in the construction of the golden calf. And wash his hand from them, from the whole thing, as if they just brought, as he would say, as he said earlier, we saw that, well, they brought this gold to me and gave it to me, and this calf sprang out of it on its own. I have nothing to do with it. Right? And likewise, he will come with four of his sons, who are all priests, who will become all priests under him, and the two oldest sons, hearkening back to Genesis, will be, uh, will be killed by the Lord as they officiate as priests, because they've used, as Scripture says, unnatural fire, indicating presumably some magical act that they brought into the worship of the Lord. And yet these are the same men who, with their father, went up the mountain and dined in the presence of the Lord. So, dining in the presence of the Lord, receiving beautiful clothing, all of those are indication of our senses, what we feel, what we sense. These are all gifts from God, but they're not, they're, they are never to be taken as an indication of holiness. Never. Right? How do you know if your spiritual life is alive? Not how you feel. In fact, the more your spiritual life is alive the worse it will feel. You will enter the desert. You will be in dryness. It will be very, very dry and uncomfortable and unpleasant. And if anything, you feel nothing. You get tired and bored and you would rather get up and do something else and your mind is all over the place. But that's how God trains you into 
the life of the Spirit. Because the food of the Spirit is so supernatural that our senses are not used to it. They don't appreciate it. If you remember the first time you fed a baby, real food, apart from milk, the, the reaction of the baby when he or she takes the first spoon. If you, you know, I, got, I, had, I went to seven of them. I always cherished that moment. That was great. Right? The, the, the kind of, what is this? You're feeding me, right? Well, to the baby, this is dry food. This is not good food, right? Or later on when you're trying to teach your children how to drink. Um, in my household, I often, at specific time, will give my kids a little bit of wine. And it happens to be red, dry wine, which most grown-ups don't even like. But this is the kind of wine I like. So my kids are very, especially the eight years old, I'll put a little bit on the bottom of the cup, and, and they're all so excited. And I'm just waiting. And then they <laughs> shove that thing in their mouth, and they run to the bathroom. Right? It's just awful. And after that, I'm in peace and quiet. I don't have to worry about it. They're not going to ask me. They got a taste of it. It's dry. Well, prayer for us, oftentimes, when we really begin to pray seriously, tastes like that. But it is that taste of it that is dry. As the monk said, it is, it's, it's like eating sand, but it is holy sand. Right? That will transform you in your virtues. And that's where you know that you're actually making progress. Your virtues. So it is very, very difficult for us, for any one of us, to even claim to make progress in the life of the Spirit, to even claim to be spiritual, to even claim to say anything about our relationship to God, how close we are to Him, how much we love Him, any of this, if we don't even know the virtues. We're not serious. Because we're basically saying we don't want to learn the tools for the trade. We don't want to be really become serious about it. So if you don't know your, the virtues, if you don't know what they mean, and if you don't know what your weaknesses are in regards to those virtues, you're basically saying, the Lord, I am just going to leave it. It's, it's basically a lotto. I might grow in a virtue, I may not, but I'll leave it up to you, and that's it. Gr- growth in the virtue is required of us. So, I, I, I keep on reminding you, and I, you will hear me harping on this often, you have to pray at home. You have to pray on your own. You have to spend time in prayer. If you're spending time in prayer because prayer is pleasurable, you're like a baby who is being uh, breastfed. You need to grow up. You keep your prayer, whether it's pleasurable or not, because of your love and fidelity to God. You do not hope to receive um, prizes or, or, um, or dessert, if you will, while you pray, but you focus on the things that need that need. Um, improvement, areas of your life that need healing, areas of your life where you have no control, your temper, your impatience, your anger, your lust, your, um, your gluttony, your um, slothfulness, all those things is where you need to go to the Lord and say, okay, because I love you, I want to improve. You're not improving for your own self-perfection. You're improving because you want to show God that you love Him. So when you stand in front of him at your own personal judgment, you can at least say in all honesty, Lord, I did the best I could. And that is not a bad thing to say. Right? This is why we do this Bible study at the end of the day. Right? So we've talked quite a bit about that. I hope that you're starting to understand the whole purpose of Exodus, taking them out of Egypt, pulling them off, all the stuff that are attractive to their senses, all the stuff that are keeping them 
chained to the horizontal plane, to life on earth, and then bringing them up to the mountain, right? Into the desert first, and then up the mountain, the holy climb, right? So that they can be transformed by God's presence who wants to give them a food that is all spiritual. And then we see what happens, how they react, the golden calf. And notice, notice they do not go up a mountain to build a calf. They do it right there down on the plain where it's easy. You see that? And, and then what does God do? He spent a lot of time explaining to them the liturgy. Because it is the way of communicating with Him. It is the way to worship Him. It is the way to give Him glory. And it is the way through which He's going to communicate back to us. And then He gives them the Ten Commandments. These are the things by which you will live. And this liturgy that I'm giving you right now is the way to indicate to you how you should live, but it is incomplete. Hopefully, if you take what I'm asking you to do seriously, you're going to realize this is incomplete. It's not sufficient. It doesn't have what it takes. So today, you may have some youth who might say to you, you know what, I don't want to go to the Catholic Church because the priest is boring, and it's boring, and the whole thing is boring. There's this very, very dynamic young pastor with a youth group at this pastor at this Protestant church, and that's where I want to go because I'm having a, it's, it's, he's inspiring, he's inspiring me, I feel so drawn into it. And the answer is, all well and good, but he cannot feed you. He can't give you your daily bread. That's what you need. Give us this day our daily bread. Okay? And if you can't go to daily Mass, obviously, by all means, do so. I've been doing some reading on the daily Mass, and St. Augustine actually spent quite a bit of time trying to justify why in the Eastern churches they, had, they don't go to Mass every day. Because in his time, in his diocese, he was a, he was a bishop, they would go to Mass every day, not just on Sunday. And in the Eastern churches, they've stopped doing that. But what he was not necessarily aware of, as I did a little bit more research, that the, the Eastern bishops were frowning upon this. They were not happy that their folks had stopped going to daily Mass. So overall, in the, in the, in the ancient church, the notion of give us today our daily bread was taken literally. Daily reception of the communion, of Holy Communion. So obviously, if you can, by all means. If you cannot, do spiritual communion. If, you're, if, you, if your job is such that you cannot go to Mass every day, the Lord, who can circumvent the physical laws, can feed you spiritually as if He's feeding you, feeding you uh, physically. If you're not even doing a request for spiritual communion and, and saying it with all faith, then something is lacking in your spiritual life. You're going to have to think about that. All right? So this, the spiritual side is what unites you to Jesus and enables you to give Him glory in the Mass and through your action by growing in the virtues. By growing in the virtues. Tonight, therefore, we're going to look at the clothing of the high priest. First, we notice at the beginning of chapter 28 that once the sanctuary is built, there needs someone to be there to officiate in that sanctuary. Remember, these... these uh, um, instructions by God were given before the golden calf. Therefore, at this point in time, Moses is perfectly justified in thinking anybody who is the firstborn should be able to go and offer sacrifice. Because this was the law up to that point. Every firstborn is king, priest, and prophet. And yet, God tells him, you're going to make clothing for Aaron and his sons, who will be priests for me. And he must be thinking, 
Why just Aaron and his sons? Why not everybody? So sometimes God will tell you what he wants before he tells you why he wants it. And it will sound strange to your ears. It will not sound right. It will not be what you want. Oftentimes it will happen like that. Many, many times it happened like that. So for instance, I'll give you two examples. Our Lady, you will conceive and bear a child. That was not at all in her plans. And so she inquired, how could this be? For I do not know man. The other example, St. Martha and St. Mary, when their brother Lazarus died. As soon as he was sick, these were women who knew who Jesus was and believed in him and probably were asking, were praying for him already before he died. And then he died and he was in the tomb for four days. And then Jesus showed up. And then Mary and Martha told him, Lord, had you been here, my brother would not have died. Why, Lord? Why did you allow him to die? Right? But that was part of his plan, and he didn't show it until later. And so often in our lives, these things happen this way. So many things we do or we don't do are so that his glory will shine at a specific moment in time. Even though at the, on the spot, we are not aware that that is what's going on. Right? So we do not understand ourselves apart from God. God is the one who who reveals who we are to ourselves. And again, that requires prayer, meditation, contemplation, union with Him, and a constant dialogue to get used to His rhythm and His way of speaking to us. So, who is to, to bring Aaron to, to, uh, to God? It is Moses. It is Moses. So, uh, the younger brother is bringing the older brother to God. It is the younger, Moses is younger than Aaron, and he's actually the youngest of all three. Moses, Miriam, and Aaron. Um, and yet he is the younger who brings the older to God. Right? And again, God will speak to us through people who we would think are not the ones that should be speaking um, in the name of God. So what is really important for us is that in our conversations with people, everybody, we are in tune with the Lord. Because he'll be speaking to us through someone, maybe at a 7-Eleven. Somebody may say something, and it's really God talking to you directly. He, he has, he, you may be asking yourself a question, and the answer will come on a, on a bumper sticker from a car right in front of you. So many different ways, but if you're not in tune, and if you're not attentive and in conversation with God, it's really easy to miss, to miss those signs, those signals. So many times we can miss what he's trying to say to us. So many times I wonder, I'd be driving somewhere and there's a light and I'm sitting on light and, I'm, and then I hit another light and then a third light and it's, it's, it's what I call red light day. He seems to hit every single one of them. And then uh, I'm, I'm driving by and I see an ambulance go by with the sirens all on. Right? And I'm in the habit, as so many other um, Folks, when I see such an ambulance, I automatically say three Hail Marys and one Glory Be for whoever is in this ambulance. And sometimes I wonder, was that why I had to be delayed? Sometimes your prayer, nobody else, if it wasn't for your prayer, a person over there will not be saved. Because you prayed, they're saved. It sounds, I know it sounds crazy. right? I know it sounds crazy. But no more crazy than what Our Lady said. Who am I? Who am I? Right? So at least you feel a little bit of what she felt when 
Saint Gabriel announced to her, you will be the mother of God. At least he's not telling us this. I don't know how we would react if we would say something like this. Or Saint Francis, save my church. Imagine the Lord appeared to you and said, you're going to save my church. Right? No wonder he thought, oh, he's talking about that old church over there. He wants me to rebuild it. No wonder. I mean, yeah, that's very comforting. That Lord, no, no, he meant the whole universal church. Right? Or, or Mother, Mother Angelica, EWTN, or, you know. So, so you don't know what God has in mind for you. You really don't. But you have to be ready. You have to be prepared. And that is key. This, this readiness, preparedness for whatever is going to happen tomorrow. So God now says, I want you to make special attire for, for Aaron and his sons. Now those clothing you're gonna, that you will see described are not made to reflect the holiness of Aaron and his sons. Because obviously it is somewhat lacking now, isn't it? Yeah, the golden calf and the two of them are being killed not too long after. So it isn't to reflect their own holiness. Neither is it to cover their shame. It is not for that either. It is to reflect God's glory. Think about it for a second. God spent uh, quite a bit of time explaining to Moses how he, want, how he wanted the wood to be closed. How he wanted the, the gold to be hammered and worked. How he wanted inanimate objects, no matter how precious they may, be, they may seem to us, to look. Then how much more would he want the living stones to be properly attired when they are in his presence. You know why he, he chose gold, don't you? Why do you think God said, you know, for the Holy of Holies, I want it all in gold? Why did he choose gold? Yes, but uh, to represent kingship. But it, why gold, not, uh, not grass? Yes, it is valued by human beings. Do you think in the, in the eyes of God, Gold has an intrinsic value greater than dirt. What do you think has greater value, dirt or gold, in God's eyes? Dirt. So why did he choose gold? Because he speaks our language. He's try- it's for pedagogy. It's because we value, we've put a lot of value on gold. And, you know, for reasonable, it's, it's reasonable to put value on gold, unlike maybe stamps or basketball cards or something like that. At least gold has something of durability, purity, beauty, etc., etc., right? I don't know about basketball cards. But be it as it may, fundamentally, it really has no more value, now does it? Right? But we value it so he speaks our language. That's what's really key. That he is speaking our language in helping us worship him. I'm always reminded of this... um, a uh, joke about uh, dirt, where a bunch of scientists go to God and say, Lord, Lord, we, look, look, we can, we can make life on our own. We don't need you anymore. And the Lord said, really? Yeah. Well, why don't you show me? Yeah, it's really easy. Step number one, we take some dirt. God said, hold it. That's my dirt. Go get your own. Dirt is, if you really, if you really sit down and think about what dirt is at the molecular or subatomic level, it's just an incredible thing. It's a mystery. So, so, but, but we, as human beings, tend to put value in certain things. So God is speaking our language. So, okay, here's what it's going to look like. Right? And that's what he does. It's this pedagogy of the Father who stoops down to our level and allows us and uses our mental images and our representation to create something that would re- evoke in our minds what heaven 
is or where his abode is. Now, that hopefully is helping everyone realize we really have no clue. Eyes have not seen and, and ears have not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. That's a long way of saying we've got no clue. That's the shorter version, not as poetic. Right? But fundamentally, that's the idea. Right? We don't understand neither space nor time nor anything about what heaven would look like. None of us has any clue about what eternity is. We can even fathom eternity. It's impossible for us to fathom eternity. You know that a Google is one followed by, by 100 zeros. That number is called a Google. It's a one followed by 100 zeros. Do you have any idea what that is? Can you mentally represent this number? I can't. I have no, anybody can represent this number. Maybe an accountant can. I don't know. Anybody can represent this number? One followed by 100 zeros? I mean, we, it, it means nothing, does it? Other than it's, it's big. <laughs> right? But yet one followed by 100 zeros is less than a second in eternity. It's nothing compared to eternity. See, we, we, we can't even fathom that. So God in his goodness, and you know, we don't give him enough credit for that. We take it for granted. In his goodness, stoops down to our level and truly speaks a language that we can understand. And he does it in nature, where if you understand the book of nature, you come to know who God is. And he does it in scripture to help us understand. So what is God trying to tell us? I am accessible. In your daily lives, I am accessible. You are not. I'm speaking a familiar language. You're the one who speaks an alien one. Between the two of us, I'm the one hanging on the other side of the phone waiting for you to switch back from this other conversation you're having right now. I'm not the one who is absent. I'm the one who is utterly present. You're the one who's absent-minded. You're the one who's not paying attention to me. So, all of these God is doing so that we can pay attention to him. So therefore, the clothing of Aaron is something that would attract our attention. The, 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 priestly, the priestly clothing, therefore, is what? It is another form of architecture. It is bodily architecture. Right? Bodily. You know when, for instance, one thing that even the, the, the secular media said about John Paul II, they would say of him that he was um, um, not only charismatic, but he was um, photogenic. And you've seen these, po- these posters of, of John Paul II out, in the, you know, out somewhere in, in some open space, and he's leaning on that cross, and the cape is flowing in the air. You're almost thinking Superman is here or something, right? It gives you that, well, okay, there's a reason for that. It's much, so the, the, the clothing is made to, again, attract our attention to the glory of God. Right? To the glory of God. So, that's why it's also important to understand what, where it comes from. So, now Aaron is going to, he's going to bring them over. And there are two types of vestments. The vestments of the high priest and that of the ordinary priest. The, the, the vestments of the ordinary priest are described in two verses only. Verses 40 and 42. But uh, there is a reason for that. Because there is a subset of the vestment of the high priest. So, our focus is going to be mostly on the vestment of the high priest. The high priest dresses in 
eight article of clothing and the ordinary in four. We're going to cover six of those eight tonight. So there's eight article of clothing and then the, 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 the ordinary priest dresses in four. Back then, the priests, all of them, officiated barefoot. There were no footwear allowed in the tabernacle. Why do you think there were no footwear allowed? Walking on holy ground. Right? Who walked barefoot? In the context of the Israelites at the time of Moses, what did that mean if you walked barefoot? Slave. You're a slave. What is, God trying to, what is God trying to communicate when you have this man who is gloriously dressed walking barefoot? I mean, think about that for a second. Just think about how strange this is. This is a man gloriously bedecked with gold and very precious stones and a whole bunch of stuff walking barefoot. What, what's, what's, the, what's God's intent? Remember, focus. It's, it's all about pedagogy. It's all about teaching us something. It's helping us to worship the right way. So what is he trying to say to us? Okay, servant of God, yes. But what I'm trying to get at is why the paradox, why the contradiction, rather, between the, the, the clothing of a very rich man and walking barefoot. Why, why is he trying to put those two things together? And what is he trying to say by putting these two things together? Look, put yourself in Aaron's shoes. Well, no pun intended. He had none. So, in, in his position, right? Um, here you are dressed with all that stuff. We're going to go through it. And you're walking barefoot. It's, you're walking barefoot on dirt. On dirt, right? So, what does that say? The very first thing, what does it say to you? Something is wrong in this picture. No? Yeah? Something is wrong. I'm dressed like this and I'm walking barefoot. Yeah? Something is wrong. Why do you think God is trying to communicate that? Because? Because something is wrong. (laughs) Fundamentally, this liturgy is broken. Fundamentally, the liturgy cannot give life. Yeah? Just can't. So it's another one of those oddities. It's not the only one. The other one we saw it is the, the, the table of shoe bread. You have 12 loaves of bread and 12 flasks of wine every day presented. What for? Well, at the end of their service in the temple, the priest and, uh, will take the bread and the wine. Okay. Is that, is that why? Why have them in the Holy of Holies? They, why? Right, but we talked about that. It's sort of half of the Eucharist. We are presenting it, but it's incomplete. You see that? Why do we have a Holy of Holies and the Holy Presence? God is there, present, and yet the Holy Priest can enter that place only once a year. Why? Do you see all the... It's like a false start. All of it is sort of false start. It is not a liturgy that gives life. You see that? So across the board, there's these incongruities in the liturgy because it's simply incomplete. It would require one to come and complete it. You have all these sacrificial animals outside. Remember, sacrificing animals, you're barefoot. You're, you're clothed in the clothing of the priest. And what are you doing out there? The work of who? A butcher. I mean, could you imagine a butcher dressed as a priest? But that's what they were. This is how they functioned. And what are they dealing with? Killing and roasting and cooking and cleaning animals the whole week long in the temple when their time came to be assigned by lots. 
For one week, you're out there doing all of this. So what are you covered with? Blood. Do you, see, do you, do you sense the incongruity? Do you, do you see how, okay, something, it just doesn't add up? It doesn't compute? Yeah? Okay. So, built into all of this, there is a sense of discomfort. There's a sense of, um, okay, it's just not right. Something is wrong. It's complicated. It's, you only can worship in Jerusalem later on. You can only sacrifice there. You have to sacrifice the bloody animals. You can't go in. You cannot see the Holy of Holies if you're you and I. You could never even dream of seeing it. It's always completely closed off to you. You realize when Jesus was there in the temple, he was never in the Holy of Holies. The Lord himself was never in the Holy of Holies. Which is actually an indication when he said, your house is empty, because I'm out here. You just couldn't get it, right? But it's incongruous. It just does not add up to what it's supposed to be. But it's a sign of what is to come. And everything is built into this for them to see if you're sitting and really thinking and really taking God seriously and really thinking about this, the, influ- the, the illumination that the Holy Spirit will give you will get you to this realization This does not compute. Why are we doing all the sacrifices? Why are we doing all of this? And later on, God himself will reveal to th- that to them, to Ezekiel. He will say, I give, them, I give them a law by which they could not live. To Isaiah, when Isaiah prophesied that there will be Levites from the Gentiles, meaning which is absolutely unthinkable. A Levite is a son of Levi. So if you're a Judean, you cannot even be a Levite. If you're a Benjaminite, you cannot be a Levite. You have to be from a Levi family up to six generation. And yet Isaiah is saying they're going to be Levites from the Gentiles. So he gave them, he revealed to them the fact that this is not what you think it is. It's just not working yet. Why am I not giving you the whole thing? Because you just cannot receive it. You cannot bear it. And it is the same with our lives. So sometimes we pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and pray until God doesn't answer us. Why? We need to ask ourselves this question. Is it because God is, His will right now is to withhold the answer from us? Or is it because we're simply not doing what we're supposed to do? You see that? So the whole thing can also be an example of our own soul. I mean, I can do a whole reading of it in a spiritual level. How this whole thing applies, the tabernacle, I told you about that, applies to your inner soul. Right? Where the, the priest is Jesus, and, or yourself. I mean, all the images will apply. But anyhow, I just wanted to point out to you this incongruity. Yes, because he's a slave, but then why is it that you have a slave dressed like a king? It just does not compute. Either he'll be all a slave, or be completely dressed like a king. But it's neither. It's neither one nor the other. Okay? Back then... The office was also her- hereditary, so from father to son. Why is it not hereditary now? Why is the priesthood not hereditary? Married men can be priests in the Catholic Church. Yes, so they could have children before, and they can become priests. In the Latin rite, it is restricted, but it's not dogmatic. There are special dispensation given to Anglican men who were married and became priests. So it is possible. You're getting closer. We're a family. Who is particularly a family? The priesthood. We'll see that, right? So a bishop is like a father. So when a man becomes a priest, his, his father is the bishop, more so than his own father. 
Right? So yes, in a sense, it is still hereditary, but it is in the context of the entire family. Right? Whereas back then, this did not exist. The spiritual bond was not there because the life of grace was not there, cannot be extended outside the natural bond. The Old Testament remains a natural covenant. Right? It requires the life of grace in Jesus for it to be raised to the supernatural covenant. That's one. Okay? And I took it very seriously, and I still take it today to very seriously. In fact, in Israel today, the rabbis are using DNA, um, DNA um, tests. They're, they're, they're trying to come up with a test, a DNA test, that will determine whether you're a Levite or not. It's very important for them, because in order for them to, as some of them think about it, reestablishing the Levi- Levitical priesthood, you need to prove you're a Levite for six generations or five, five generations. A long time. You just can't say, my father was a Levite. Not enough. You have to show five generations. You have to be without any stain, which is kind of interesting today how they interpret that. But very, very important for them to establish this continuity. Now, how, how, how do we see that in the Catholic Church? Do we do the same thing? Not for the priests. For the bishops. What do we call it? In a sense, we're worse than the Israelites. We call it apostolic succession. Apostolic succession. In order for us to recognize a holy order, to recognize that a church has holy orders, they must prove that their bishops have been ordained by bishops, have been ordained by bishops, and on and on and on, all the way down to the apostles. You have to establish this apostolic continuity all the way through. And that's why we do not recognize the Anglican order, because this was lost. But we still recognize the Orthodox order, because even though they're separate from us, the apostolic um, succession is maintained. Okay, so in, we're not asking to the fifth generation; we're asking all the way back to the apostles, right? It's the same principle, though, because it is covenant, it is covenantal, and it flows. The life of grace has to flow from bishop to bishop, from the power given to the apostles all the way down. Whereas back then it was purely natural within the the family of Aaron. All right. So the the, the attire of the high priest is 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 uh, really. You can see the prominence of the use of gold in it. And, um, and this, is, this was the attire used every day except for Yom Kippur, where he was supposed to be dressed in white. And um, I'm, I'm here giving you a copy of um, the uh, picture with some of the uh, important, well, not some, the most important elements in, um, in the clothing of the, um, of the, uh, of the high priest. And we're going to go through those today just on a natural level to explain to you what they are. And then uh, next week we'll, uh, we'll look at them from a Christian perspective. So you can see here an illustration of the high priest. And from top to bottom you have the mitre or the turban. The mitre is again the word we still use uh, in the Catholic Church for bishops. Although we don't call it a turban. But there was a connection between the two. And then beneath the turban, you see the golden crown. That was a crown on which was written, it was a thin band of gold on which was written, Holy to the Lord, right? which he, he was supposed to, what the high priest is supposed to wear. Then you see the, the, um, the main piece here is called the ephod, and we're going to go through that. And on top of the ephod, circled in white, is the breastplate with 12 uh, precious stones representing the, um, the, the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. 
and the ephod was held in place by a girdle that you see right here, and by two onyx shoulder pieces that strapped the front and the back together. And on these two pieces were written, were inscribed the 12 tribes of Israel. So the priest, the holy priest, when he would enter to officiate, was carrying on his shoulders the 12 tribes of Israel. Right? Reminiscent, obviously, of the real significance of all of this will come later when Jesus carries all of us on his shoulders as he goes through Calvary. Right? Um, then beneath that, there is the blue robe, and then the inner white robe, and then there is these bells and pomegranates, which are uh, tied to the blue robe. Um, and you see in his hand, he's holding the censer. So, in some of our rites today, the censer has bells associated with it. So, I think in the, uh, the, Melkite, the Melkites have that, where the the, the, the censer has actually bells on it. And you can see where, where the bells are coming from. So a, a, um, a lot of the priestly vestment of today harkens back to the high priest and priest vestments back then. Okay. So let's just go through this. Yeah. First, I want to point out to you this, that the, uh, the, um, the, we really don't fully understand all the technical terms in Scripture. Um, because they've been lost through time. But the, um, the, um, um, one of the Jewish commentary I use has this to say, which I found very interesting. Although the various terms, items of dress are given in detail, not all the specialized technical terms have been fully clarified. And they add, our understanding is enhanced by the living tradition from Second Temple times, the Temple of uh, but in that case, it would be Temple of Herod, although it could be also the Temple of Ezra, which are found in Ben Sira, Josephus, and Rabbinic literature. They make reference to the living tradition. So we did not invent this term of living tradition. We have a living tradition because when the Christians of the first century inquired, they found that the Jews also carried a living tradition, and we continued carrying it over. It's sort of interesting to point that out. And obviously, through time, things may have changed. Be it, be it as it may, we start with the ephod, which is that big piece that you see in your picture over there. Um, it is obviously the preeminent piece of clothing, and it's extremely expensive because there is a significant use of gold in it. Right? It's gilded with gold. And then the, the, it uses the five primary colors. There's going to be gold, there's purple, there's red, there's green, and there's blue. All of the five colors are used in the ephod, and they were not used anywhere else. So it's um, uh, other than maybe the breastplate. But very important piece of uh, clo uh, clothing. Now, what does it really mean? Presumably, it harkens back to the word ipod in Ugaritic and Akkadian. Or, I mean, Agaritic or Epatu in Assyrian and Akkadian, where it also signifies costly garment. So more, so, more, more likely than not, in Egypt, there must have been a piece of clothing that represented um, wealth, that represented richness, that represented the state of uh, the wealthy and the rich. And God had inspired himself from that 
to represent the clothing of the of the of the high priest. And uh, so, um, for instance, we do have an image of that to, to see that this is the case. We can think of the clothing of the um, sepharim in Europe. The way they dress is actually connected to the gentry in Poland in the uh, in the um, 19th or 18th century. So their clothing of today was the clothing of the rich back then. And they carried it forward, but then everybody else dropped it and they kept on wearing it and it became a very distinguished, distinguishing piece of attire. So presumably the ephod had the same um, history behind it. Having said that, ephod is really a tricky word in scripture because it also related to something that is idolatrous. So it's connected to the teraphim, and the teraphim are small statues of gods that, uh, that uh, idolatrous worship in Israel uh, had. So, for instance, um, if you remember, um, um, not Rebecca, Rebecca, Jacob's wife, had those teraphim that she brought with her, right? It's connected to that. Uh, we read also that Gideon is said to have made golden ephod after which all Israel went astray and which became a snare to Gideon and his household. In 1 Samuel 21.10, it is related to a fixed place in a sanctuary at Nob, and it's a sanctuary where Goliath's sword was standing. So an ephod could presumably relate to a richly decorated statue in a fixed place. So it doesn't necessarily have only the meaning of what, what you see here. It can also mean uh, robing of a god in richly garments, which obviously is idolaters. So it has a double meaning in, in the two. But be it as it may, God intended... So notice in this case how God has no qualm using something that is utterly... that is used in idolatrous context. Right? One thing you will hear, um, for instance, there are a group of Christians who will never have a Christian, uh, they will never have a Christmas tree in their house because they say it's pagan. And they're right. It, it comes from a pagan tradition. More, more, more likely than not, connected to Germany where in, this, in the winter solstice, the shortest day of the week, they would put candles on a tree to, uh, to worship some sort of a god. Well, the the missionaries saw that and interpreted it to mean, well, yeah, you're worshiping the real God who is Jesus and, and, and so on and so forth. Or another good example of pagan, uh, pagan um, tradition is the, uh, um, the bride dressed in white uh, during, a mar- uh, um, during a wedding. Uh, is that pagan? Absolutely pagan. Uh, but it was Christianized. So God is not trying to tell us we have to completely cut ourselves away from what the world is doing is try to say we need to retain what is good and throw away what is not. And that has always been part of the missionary life of the church. So in, uh, in, uh, in Africa, in the Latin rite, when they say the confideor, the, you know, I, um, um, I confess, the confideor, uh, you know, usually here you, you're supposed to beat your breast in sorrow. Well, over there in Africa, beating of the breast is more meaning I'm the strongest one. So they don't do that. Well, when instead what they do, they open one hand and then they, they beat the other with it. And that's the, the way of expressing sorrow. So you adapt to the culture in which you are. And in Africa, they use the drums in mass. Uh, they do use it also apparently through adoration. But it's a very slow beat. It's just a, a, a drum 
representing uh, a beating heart, the beating heart of Jesus. Right? Well, we do it here, be incongruous, we're not used to this, but back then, so it is, God is doing that here as well. So I don't want you to think, oh, wow, it's just all about mis- mysteries and mis- you know, mystical stuff from heaven. It's also about very practical, um, uh, there's a very practical purpose behind it to use what they are used to, clarify it, purify it, and turn it into something good. And that's what he does here with the ephod. Okay, now, these, the, the, the ephod is held in place by two onyx stones on which is engraved the 12 names the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, engraving is known to have existed and been perfected between the 16th and 18th dynasty in Egypt. And we're talking 16, between the, yeah, um, during the period of the 18th dynasty, 1600 to 1400 before Christ. So there are very good examples of engraving that are that fine. Now, why is God doing that? Again, presumably, they may, must have been used to that in Egypt. And he's using it the right way. Look, look, for instance, today, there is a movement in the church that's doing the same thing. And it's the Knights of Columbus. The Knights of Columbus is a reaction to the, um, uh, I'm sorry? To the Masons. So the Masonic order has all these knights and degrees and what have you. And in the Knights of Columbus, you also have degrees, right? But very different. But it's serving a similar purpose. It's redirecting something um, to a good purpose, away from an evil one. Right? Presumably, the ephod must have been used, and I haven't seen any references yet to cultic use in Egypt, because most, most priests in many of the uh, known cults officiated naked. They were unclosed. And that's because it has, uh, obviously, uh, sexual connotations and orgies and what have you. Uh, so here you see something that is extremely, where God is asking the priest to be dressed in very modest clothing. He's covered from head to toe. And... But, but still using some elements that must have had significance for them, and when they saw it, represented something about power. But it's all directed towards the Lord and not away from Him. All right. So when the priest enters, he is wearing on him, on his shoulders, the 12 tribes, so that he must remember that he's there in, in the name of the entire people of Israel. Now, the breast piece. The breast piece is essentially a piece of clothing which is made of the same multicolored fabric, and it was a pouch, literally a pouch, nine inches, nine inches square, worn over the breast. And it had on the top 12 different gemstones that were affixed on it. And each was engraved with the name of one of the tribes of Israel. And these stones were arranged in four rows of three. So you can imagine how richly dressed the, the, the high priest was. The, um, of the twelve stones, we recognize with certainty three. Only three are recognized. The rest, um, we find that the, actually, I'm sorry, the, the nine of the twelve, yeah, nine of the twelve are listed in Ezekiel 28.13 as gems found in the Garden of Eden. So obviously, there is a very strong connection back to the book of Genesis. So, what is that representing? The clothing of the high priest is a way to indicate that he is entering Eden, the garden. But it is symbolic, as we said, right? Because it doesn't have the power. There is the tree 
of knowledge and uh, the, the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil is not there, nor is the tree of life. The two trees are not in the tabernacle. They are in our churches, right? which is the working of the Holy Spirit to inspire priests to preach and then knowledge of good and evil and then the tree of life, the, 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 the Eucharist that gives us life. But in his case, it is a symbolic gesture to indicate, I want you back. So you can really think of the Old Testament as the garden, Adam and Eve in the garden, Adam and Eve out of the garden, and the rest of it is a long journey back home. A long journey back home. This is what um, is, is, going, is going on here. In any case, inside that pouch, there were actually two things called the Urim and Thummim. Urim and Thummim. Now, we really don't know what the Urim and Thummim are. We have no idea because they're not described. We have an idea of their use. God, oftentimes, when you need to pick someone to officiate as a priest, you picked by lots. So, for instance, you could use you know, the sticks. Remember that? Whoever picks the shortest stick, is the, this is picking by lots. Remember, in the case of Zechariah, he was chosen by lot. That's how he was chosen. And for them, they interpreted that to mean it is God's will. That is God's will speaking through the lots. Which, which, which is an argument I've used when I did the book of Genesis to indicate that God is not against randomness. You know, when people think, like, you know, some Christians think that in creation nothing could have happened randomly. While God chose priests randomly, it would seem. So I don't ascribe necessarily to, this, uh, to the creationist, purely creationist view. No, I think God could allow things to happen in ways that appear to us randomly, because randomness is nothing more than a measure of our own ignorance, right? Because obviously he did it with the lots. And then the umim and thumim is even worse in a sense, because essentially it's almost, it, it, it acts, it really behaves like flicking a coin. So you go to the high priest and you ask a question, shall I do this? And then if, he, if it's umim, it is yes. If it's, if it's, uh, I'm sorry, am I saying this right? If it's Urim, it is yes. If it's Thummim, it's no. That's how God answered. So you can almost play the, you know, the game of yes and no with God. You, know, you can take any open question you want, turn it into a direct question, and by yes and no, figure out what you want. right? Instead of saying, um, you know, Lord, may, you know, am I going to be rich? Which is, or how rich am I going to be? You can say, well, I have $3 million. Yes, no. Okay, what about 1.5? You know, just play this game, right? I'm just kidding. Don't do that. But the point is, this was really given as ways for the high priest to provide answers from God to the people. He acted as a minister of the Lord. As, in, in, almost in a prophetic sense, but in a very specific way, to be able to answer questions about... Uh, specific issues that are important. And, pardon? Yes, absolutely. God sanctioned this. He basically told them, build the breastplate this way and put in it the Urim and Thummim. So it's, it's from Him. Now, why do we have that today? 
Wouldn't be lying if you had like a hotline to the Vatican. You just, you know, you, you, you call and you ask a question. If it's one, it's no. It's two, it's yes, something like that. I mean, why, why do we have that today? Okay, we have the church. What does that mean, we have the church? When you have a pressing question, okay, hold on. You have a question. Lord, I met this guy. Should I marry him? Yes or no? Would it be nice to have like an Urim and Thummim? Okay. Yes. No. Wouldn't that be cool? Lord, I got this job offer in um, Minneapolis. Should I take it? Those are the types of questions we're talking about. Okay. Go to prayer. Be more specific. Okay, but what, what, what did he give us? He took away the Urim and Thummim, right? Ah, okay. The gifts. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, Right? Knowledge, wisdom, understanding, counsel, fear of the Lord, right? Okay, he gave us prayer, and there is a method that he also told us about with St. Augustine. When you're trying to discern God's will, first you pray. So, you can do a novena. Not only that, he gave us intercessors, very powerful ones. Do a novena to St. George, St. Joseph, somebody, right? Ask them to intercede for you. Then, the next step, what do you do? You talk to people of good counsel. They need not be Christian. They need to be specialized in the area you're looking at. If you have a kid that needs to, go to see a psychologist, you just don't talk to Christians. You talk to people who know psychology. Yeah? Then, what do you do? Step number three. You make a choice. You decide. And step number four? You do it. You do it. Can you give me an example of somebody who had to do all of that stuff, and end up picking the wrong choice. Much more famous than either Aaron or Judah. More famous than Peter. Yes, St. Joseph. If somebody would have needed an Urim and Thummim, it would be St. Joseph. I mean, talk about a choice. Right? Well, yeah, he decided to send her away quietly. Talk about a wrong choice. So God even allowed him to go all the way, making the wrong choice, and then he came and revealed his will. You know this? He let him make the wrong choice. And then came back and told him what to do. Isn't that better than Urim and Thummim? If you make a wrong choice, God will be with you. Because what you said, what you said, we don't have the Urim and Thummim, yes, but what do we have? Emmanuel. God is with us. See, if we have an attraction to the Urim and Thummim, is because we're, forget- we're forgetting what I just told you earlier. He's on the phone waiting to talk to us. And we're, we want to go to, to, to Vegas. You see? We have much, much. We don't need that stuff. Right? What is it that the Uri Muthumim will not give you? What is the one thing it will not give you? If you had it today. What would you gain from it? Graces. What grace have you gained by getting an answer by an Urim and Thummim? Yeah? You are in the order of grace. Therefore, everything you do is a gift from God to you to help you merit grace. To merit glory in heaven. Every difficult situation you're in is a gift from God to help you grow in grace. Every bit of it if you can keep that in your mind when you're going through tough moments, and who doesn't have tough moments? 
right? Everybody are faced with real difficult moments in our lives. But if you can, if you can hold on to this truth, that what I'm going through is temporary, life is short, it's not going to last, and I'm here to gain, to merit eternal life. And what God is doing with me is to help me reach heaven and glorify Him. If you can keep that focus constantly before your eyes, and it's not easy, it's not easy. But if you can, if you work out your virtues to the point where you can do that, which is called holy indifference, then you've really achieved a great victory against the flesh, the world, and the devil, the three enemies that are set before us. That's why there is no Urim and Thummim, because you know, you and I know exactly what we would do. Right? Those lines to the vacuum would be jammed 24-7 by everybody. We would, found, we would have found our magician. Do you understand? Be it as it may. He had that. Okay. As I told you, the meaning is really obscure. We really don't know what it means. The best interpretation is that it's light and complete. Or they fulfill their word. I mean, it's, anyhow, I'll leave it at that. It's instruction and truth, according to Septuagint. That's why uh, the Vulgate similarly renders it a doctrina and veritas. But all these are interpretation. We've got no clue what those two things are. And by the second temple time, they were stopped working. They were not available anymore. So they were only available for a period of time, and then they were gone. So be it as it may, beneath that you had that robe that he wears... It was a long robe woven entirely of uh, woolen thread, dyed the aristocrat- aristoc- aristocratic color, the tekelet, on which, okay, and this garment is described as a woven work. It seems to have been ankle length, armholes, no sleeves, and rather free-flowing. And then there was a reinforcement around the neck to prevent, free- to prevent fraying. It was, as I said, of pure blue, no admixture of any other characteristics of the colors. And um, that's all I'll say about that for now. So, now the pomegranate, I told you, it it had at the bottom of it bells and pomegranate. Now, we really don't know what that truly means. Does it mean uh, pomegranate as in small, round, circle, or golden um, balls? Or did it mean that the bells inside of them had something that was the size of a pomegranate grain? Not clear. Not clear at all. Why did he, did he have, obviously when he walked, right, he made a, a noise. It was a, you know, the noise of small bells, right? So why? What was that required? Well, um, it's really not clear why he had to do that. And it was, um, and, and also the other thing is that we are not completely sure if there were if there were um, 72 or 36 bells in all. Right? Because you could essentially... So the idea was you had bells and pomegranate, but all of them were bells. Right? So if the bells were inside the pomegranate, the, the pomegranate inside the bells, you divide the number by two. Right? So 72 represents, obviously, the Sanhedrin, the number of, uh, of the sage of Israel. And, uh, but, but what's the connection? We were really not clear on why he had to do that. Some conjectures, for instance, um, Rash, uh, Rashban refers to the requirement of Leviticus that only the high priest and nobody else shall be present in the tent of meeting when he enters to make expiation 
So therefore, the tingling of the bells alerts the other priests to vacate the premises. Okay? But that's only on Yom Kippur. Only on the Day of Atonement he's supposed to be alone, not on other days. So, not clear. Another, uh, another um, suggestion is that um, there must have something, something to do with royal palaces. Just as one would not appear unceremoniously or abruptly before the king, but rather is announced, so the high priest is announcing himself as he's entering the Holy of Holies. All right. Maybe possible. Potentially, the tingling attracts the attention of the worshippers outside the tent to the fact that the high priest is performing the ritual or the bells sent out a message that no mishap had occurred in the course of the priestly duties, such as happened to Aaron's two sons, which I talked to you about earlier. Um, do we use bells? Yes. See where we use bells? It harkens all the way back to those ones. We, we don't invent stuff in a church. We preserve things. That's why. We use bells. All right. Now, the frontlet, the thing that he had on the top of his head, is the gold plate worn on the forehead over the headdress and bearing the inscription, uh, Holy to the Lord. And it is Kodesh Yahweh, literally. The name of the Lord was inscribed on it. Not the Lord as in Adonai or El Shaddai, but the holy name of the Lord was, the, the tetragrammon was written on it. Right? So it could be a crown, it could be a diadem, an ornamental headband, which is emblematic of royalty and aristocracy. And it is well known. Where do you find this, basically? If you've seen, where is it really familiar? In Egyptian paintings. It's all over Egyptian paintings. Yeah, these, these, uh, these uh, golden headbands are all over Egyptian. So that's where you see it coming from. That's why the constant uh, reminder that he's using tools and symbols that are very familiar to them from Egypt. Right? Essentially, he's raising before them, fundamentally, he's raising before him an equivalent image of Pharaoh, but slave. Right? That's what he's doing. All right. Now, beneath the robe, you had to wear a tunic. And the definite article means that it was well known. It's a kutonet, which is mentioned often in, uh, in the Bible. It was fashionable in the Near East in the late Bronze Age and became standard dress in the Iron Age. Both men and women wore it, mainly as an ankle-length undergarment, usually next to the skin. Sometimes were clearly marks of prestige, such as the garment that Jacob gave to Joseph, as well as those worn by princesses in the days of David. Uh, the high priest's tunic is defined as, the, um, as, a, as a type that is understood as checkered work. It is here translated as fringed, but it, the rendering is not certain. Josephus, who's who was a priest, reports that the tunic of the high priest was of a double texture of ankle length and had long sleeves tightly laced around the arms. So it was laced around the arms, and you can see in our priest, they also have a sleeve, a long tunic they wear under the garment. Uh, no, I'm sorry, under the priestly garment, over their, their, um, their clothing. And it harkens back to that. And next week, I'll give you some of the relationship between the, um, the way the garment was braided and the nature of Christ. I and mean, a lot of symbolism built into all of this, which is kind of really nice. And uh, we'll talk more about that. And then the hairdress, according to Josephus, was like a tiara, a tiara wreathed with blue and encircled by a crown of gold. But in the second report, he describes it as a non-conical cape, 
a cap over which was stitched another cap embroidered in blue, encircled by three-tiered golden crown and topped by a golden calyx. And the origin of these inscriptions is not known. We really don't know what the turban or the, 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 the tiara or the, the mitre look like. Right? We don't. The only thing I can tell you is in the case of the bishop, you notice, and I already told you that, I think it's split in half. You know, when he wears it, if you look sideways, you see that it's split. It's actually referring, if you were to wear it with a, with a slit in front, it would look like two horns. And it is in reference to the horns representing power. That's what the tiara of the bishop wears. And if you notice, before he starts the consecration, he takes it. He removes it. Right? It's a very symbolic of the fact that you know, he's now celebrating the mysteries of Christ. All right. Now, the vestments of the ordinary priest were really a subset of what we see right now in the clothing of the high priest, and I'm not going to spend much time on them. So, if you were to, if you were, one description of the high priest as he was coming out was given to us by Ben Ezra, and he says this, which is uh, very striking. He says that when the high priest came out, yeah, this is what he said. So this is a description from Ben Sirah, which is about 190 B.C. How glorious was he when he looked forth from the tent and emerged from behind the temple veil. He was like the morning star appearing between the clouds, like the full moon on a festival day. So the appearance of the high priest was glorious. And I suppose this is what God wanted to imprint in the hearts of the Israelites, that in the high priest, their representative, there was the glory of the Lord. Right? Because his whole intent is to turn them away from idols and turn them to him. Therefore, he gave them a glory, which is also indicative of the heavenly glory he wishes to give all of us. So all of this has multiple meanings built into it. The first is obviously that you must be well-dressed before you present yourself before the Lord. The second is, because you are uh, barefoot, remember where your glory is coming from. It is not yours. And thirdly, remember your dress is not complete. Right? You haven't, you're you're not, the, the whole ceremonial is not complete. And the fourth thing, obviously, is do not look, do not look away from my temple because there is nothing out there that I cannot give you. Everything you need, I will give you. And then some. And the Lord himself told Peter. When Peter said, Lord, we've left everything. What shall we get? Amen, amen. I say to you, whoever leaves, father, mother, children, land, because of my name, will receive a hundredfold here and in heaven. A hundredfold. Right? So, God is teaching the Israelites to, he's trying to wean them away from the worship of Egypt and bring them to worship him in truth and in spirit. And it's going to take a long time for this to happen. And he's doing all this with the complete knowledge that in two weeks or a couple of days from this description, they're going to be building the golden calf with Aaron, no less. So it shows you his forbearance. It shows you his mercy. It shows you his love. That he, he is still planning to help us even when we are falling. And sometimes in our fall, there are the elements required to help us. When he prayed in Luke, Simon, Simon, the devil has asked to sift you 
That's in chapter 24, I believe, of the Gospel of St. Luke. To sift you, really, it means you in the plural. All of you. Talking about all the apostles before his passion. But I prayed for you in the singular. Only you. He didn't pray for all the apostles. He prayed only for Simon. Only Simon. Simon, Simon, the devil has asked to sift all of you. To sift you all. But I prayed for you in the singular. So that when your faith returns, or when you return, something like that, remember exactly the word, you strengthen your brethren. The role of Peter, right? To strengthen the brethren. That's his role. One of his roles. But the bottom line is that he knew what was going to happen. He knew that Peter was going to have his own golden calf moment. But he had already planned for this. Already prepared for it. Yeah, but see, it's true. But let's be very careful. Because the answer is this question isn't because Peter was going to be the, the rock upon which the church is built. True. But let's keep one thing in mind, though. God is not about... He's not using... Peter. He's not doing this because he wants to make, he wants to use him. He does it first because he loves him. Exactly, out of love for him, whether he was going to be the head or not. But obviously, in his function as the rock, he's supposed also to help his brethren. So he is receiving God's help. That's why the Pope always has special graces that he receives, right? But it's true for all of us. All of us. So, we one day stand up robed in glory. What does that mean? It means we went to confession, and we come out, and we are in a state of grace. We're robed in glory, in, in clothing that is far more glorious than the high priest. The problem is that even when we step out of the confession, we're not barefooted. Our shoes tend to be very comfortable, and make us forget our state. Right? And... So often, even after we've stepped out of the confessional, ten minutes later, we're already building our own golden calf. And yet God knows that. And as long as He knows where our heart is, and we're really trying to go to Him and try the best we can, He forgives. And He's merciful. All right, next week, we're going to take the same walk through all of this, but from a purely Christian context. And I'll show you all the Christological elements are built into all of the symbolism that you saw here. All right? Okay. Let's end with a word of prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll take questions. Yes. Did Aaron know that he was going to be chosen as the high priest? No, he did not. That's a very good question. No, he did not. He was busy building the golden calf. Why was this, all of this happening? Which is a very good point, because oftentimes... No, he did not know. Yeah, oftentimes, we're too busy building our things... And God's plan is sort of passing us by. Because we're busy somewhere else. But he didn't know. Yeah. Yes. The question is, for married men who become priests, does it matter if they knew they had a calling and decided to be married and have children first? Um, you know, it really depends on every circumstance. I, I don't think there is a clear-cut answer to this. Uh, I suspect that some may, uh, may want to go this route, to, to avoid celibacy. Um, others may not know that they were called to be a priest. So it really depends. You see, when you say be fathers, we have to be careful because a priest is a father. There's spiritual fatherhood, which is even more important than natural fatherhood, right? So a priest, if a priest can't be a good father, he shouldn't be a priest. You have, you, you have to be 
you have to be able to be a really good father to be a priest. So being a priest does not mean, oh, well, father is not for me, so I'm just going to be a priest. It doesn't work this way. It's actually the opposite. It means you could be a great father when you become a priest. Okay? That's, that's key for us to understand. So, therefore, the only reason where, or why someone might want to be married and have children before he becomes a priest, if he knew he was going to become a priest, is um, really strange to me. I wouldn't be able to... I mean, I don't want to um, um, speculate as to why someone might do it. But I suppose it's possible. Yeah. What's behind the question? Yes. I mean, if it's determined somebody has a calling, somebody has a calling. Remember, having a calling to the priesthood is a, is a wonderful thing, but it's not a guaranteed. It's not a guarantee for holiness, right? So you can still serve people and do a lot of good stuff, but you yourself are not going in holiness. All right? Yes. Okay. So the question is, how do we how do we um, harmonize free will with God's um, omniscience, that is his uh, uh, knowledge you know, of everything that happened, happening, and will happen. Right? That part is actually easier than the other question because full knowledge does not necessarily imply um, a um, direct will. The fact that God knows how things are going to flow doesn't necessarily imply that he's directing them. If, if it was only that, it would mean that simply God is aware of what is going to happen but before it, it happens, but he actually allowed his creatures to make it happen as part of his prevenient will. But the problem isn't that. The problem is that you, we have to reconcile free will with predestination, which is a much harder problem to solve. And there are two things we cannot do. We cannot say that there is, no pre, there is no such thing as predestination, and neither can we deny free will. These, are, they, these will be two types of heresies. And both of them are actually tied to the, the, the theology of grace, the meaning of grace, what is really grace in the true sense of the word. Here's one thing I can say, which is very important. The intent, God's will for all is to be saved. No one, God never created anyone and stamped on that person's soul hell, right? Which, as unbelievable as it may seem, is what, the, uh, what uh, Calvin essentially believed. In Calvin's uh, mind, there is no such thing as, by the way, mo- most Protestant churches, the theology of grace is broken. When they talk about grace, when you're saying grace, nothing to do with what we mean by grace. It's a two different Christianity, very different. Be it as it may. We don't say that. God's intent is for all to go to heaven. That is absolutely true. However, it is also absolutely true that God does not help all to go to heaven with the same, with the same intensity, if we will. So, for instance, it would, be, it would be absurd to say that God loves Judas the same way he loved Mary. I'm talking about our Lord Jesus Christ. It would be completely absurd to say that because we would be stripping Jesus of his humanity. We're making his love to be something completely alien and therefore not human. It's, you have to be very careful with that. He was, he's fully God and fully man. So he's not man. Right? Jesus is not a man as in only a man. But he is 
fully man in that he was a man without original sin on him. Therefore, his love was perfect. But it would be a mistake to think that he loved his mother the way he loved Judas. No way. And in fact, the good example is that Jesus, and the Gospel of St. John, loved John more than the others. Yet, Peter is the one who loved Jesus more than the others. Okay? So, fundamentally, do not ascribe to God properties that belong to a creature. God is not a creature, he's a creator. As a creator, he's perfectly free to do whatever he wants, and furthermore, he doesn't owe us anything. It doesn't, doesn't mean that if God loves this person more than he loves me, that God is being unjust. Because injustice, if I were to refer to justice, all of us destined to hell would have been perfectly just. That's our problem. We don't think that. We, we don't agree. We, we disagree with God. That destining us all to hell because of what Adam and Eve did would be unjust. Right? We have a problem with that. That's our problem. It's not his. Okay? But definitely God has a provenient will for others, for some more than others. Right? At the same time, we have complete free will. We have to also assert that. So, bottom line. Not that you're all confused. What does it mean in practice? Practically speaking, what does it mean? It means what St. Padre Pio used to say. Pray, hope, not worry. Because what can you do if you're going to Mass, receiving communion, trying your best, receiving... Put it this way. You're not going to go to Jesus and say, please help me, Lord. And Him saying to you, ah, time's out, sorry. Time's up. I've, you've exceeded your quota. It's over. It's not going to happen. Why? You, if somebody come ask you for forgiveness, not seven times, seven times, 77, right? All sins are forgiven except the one against... Right? What is he trying to say? As long as you're coming to me, as long as you're going to confession regularly, as long as you're availing yourself of the sacraments, as long as you have a life of prayer, as long as you fear me, you love me, you, you, you venerate my mother, you sing your rosary, don't worry about it. You're a good company. However, from a perspective of truth, we have to contend with this issue, which is not an easy one. God. Yeah. So, to, be, to, to reiterate, God does not will for someone to go to hell when he creates that person. That's Never. That's out of question. You understand that? So, fundamentally, the predestination that we talk about is a positive one in the sense that God wills for all to be saved. God wants all to be saved. Christ died for many, but many means really all. That is a fundamental principle. However, it is no less true that God is not showering on everybody the graces He showered on His mother. Is that a fair statement? Could, could God shower on everybody the graces He showered on His mother? Right? Could He actually shower on you graces that He showered on all the other people put together? Sure. He could. Does He do it? No. You're with me? What is, that, what is the logical conclusion, therefore? God, in a sense, predestined some to heaven more than others. You're with me? There are some He absolutely wants up there. More so than others. But it doesn't mean He refuses the door to anybody. You see the, you see the implication? Yeah. Nothing is random, absolutely. So there is this... So there is therefore predestination in play for every single person. But yet at the same time, it is not a kind of predestination that 
prevents us from using our free will. I would say it's a predestination that actually makes it possible for us to use our free will. I know it's paradoxical, but that's how predestination works in a Catholic conception. It affirms man's freedom. It doesn't take it away. Okay? And therefore, the personal judgment we receive is truly a personal judgment based on what we've done. Right? I'm not going to go further in this. The bottom line is, pray, hope, don't worry. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.